If you all want to open your Bibles to Philippians 3, that's where our text is going to come from. A minute ago, sitting there waiting to come up, and it dawned on me that uh, I feel like the message that God gave me today, you know, I don't, don't know if anybody remembers last time I spoke, but um, and I didn't think about this when I was studying, but, um, you know, the kind of the main main thing I felt like God was saying was, you know, we need to seek his face. We need to be serious about seeking his face. And, and thinking, it just dawned on me when John was praying that this message is really kind of the, the how-to of that, um, the how to seek his face. And, uh, and I think that's really important. Um, And, you know, I always like to start off by making you guys think, because I I like to think. But I want you guys to honestly think, are you entirely happy with where you're at right now? With the way that your life is right now? With the way that your relationships are? Are you entirely happy right now with your relationship with Jesus? With your relationship with your family? With your relationship with church? with, with With the amount of God's power? that's being exhibited in your life, are we entirely happy with where we're at? Or do we look at our lives and, and we, see, we see a need? We see, we know there's something missing. Well, and just, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like going to, going to Thanksgiving. You know, everything's always got more context when you're with family, so... Just, just to remove any doubt from anybody's mind that I'm saying that with somebody in mind, I told the guys at prison the exact same thing last night. Because I think it's true. And I told them this. I said that we, I, can, I can read you guys verses and, and we can, we can, I can tell you guys about you know, systems of theology or study this way or come to truth this way. I can tell you all these things, but what you really need isn't to hear so much as to see. And what you need to see isn't my point, it's Jesus. And if we don't admit our need, if we don't admit the shortage in our life, then we will never see Jesus. And and so it starts with an acknowledgement that everybody who came came to Christ outside the scribes and Pharisees came because they knew they had a need, right? Everybody that sought Jesus out sought him out because they had a need. They got before his face because they saw that they had a need. And so I want to encourage you that if you're here tonight and you sense that you have a need, I want to pray that Jesus shows up because when Jesus shows up, it doesn't really matter what I'm preaching on. When Jesus shows up, he shows up and it, and it fixes the way we think and it gives us the next step and it, and it equips us to where we're not hopeless anymore, and we're not helpless anymore, and we're not being pushed around anymore, but suddenly we have a very clear-cut path to where we want to go. And suddenly we see where we want to go. It's in the person, Jesus Christ. But I think there's two really big hindrances to you getting to experience Jesus in such a way tonight that it will affect you. And I think the first one is if everything that we read in the Bible you assume applies to someone else. You know, when we've been in the church culture long enough, when we've been in an environment long enough, we get to the place where we've heard every verse before, and we've heard it talked about before, and we immediately have these slots. And so 
the preacher stands up here and he reads the verse and we immediately think, man, if so-and-so got a hold of that, they would get it. And man, if so-and-so saw that, they would get it. And man, I, I hope so-and-so's listening and I expect them to call me when I get home and, and do this. Am I the only one that's ever done that? <laughs> but when we do that, we get nothing from the text. We get nothing from truth. And we miss Jesus coming to us. Because I will tell you right now that when Jesus shows up, he didn't come to Peter and say, Hey, Peter, did you see Andrew over there? What a screwball. I want you to go over and fix Andrew. He never did that. What did he tell Peter? He told Peter all sorts of stuff, but it was always pointed at Peter. He never gave Peter what Peter needed to fix Andrew. He gave Peter what Peter needed to fix himself. So if we come to God's word and we only come to God's word to see where other people are wrong or other people are missing it, we'll never see it. And we'll never experience it. And then the second great hindrance I believe that we have when we come to the Word of God is this, is that we don't accept truth at face value. And what I mean by that is we hear something and we acknowledge it's true, but before we allow it to sink into our hearts, we do the, but if that's true, then what about this? Or if that's true, then what about this? We don't even allow it to get to our hearts because we have this filter. Well, well I can't do that because of this. Or I can't be that because of this. Or I can't do that because of this. Or if I believe that, how would so-and-so think of that? Or if that's true, then what about these people over here? We can't live our lives that way. We can't see Jesus that way. We can't live our life in the pursuit of how the truth affects everyone else. We have to be so absorbed with the idea that Jesus would show his face to us that we want nothing else than to see his face. Just to forget the consequences. Forget how it impacts me personally or how my family might take this or my peer group at school or whatever it is that would say, well, if I lived that out or if I accepted that and made it my own, so-and-so might have a problem with it or that, that might affect this friendship or this relationship. If that's the way that we approach truth, we'll never understand truth. We'll never see truth for what it is. So if we want Tonight, if we recognize a lack in our life, and if we don't recognize a lack in our life, then we have a really big lack in our life. And I mean that with all my heart. We don't, we are, as we're going to see tonight, we're not ever at a place where we don't have a lack. We're not ever at a place this side of eternity where there's not something else that we can press on for and press into. We all have lacks. We all have things that we need Jesus to come in tonight and help us out with. We have things that we can't handle on our own that are bigger than us and that are overwhelming us and that are becoming part of our identity, not Christ becoming our identity, but this thing. And tonight, we need to lay hold of His throne and ask, us, ask Him to change us. And the way that He will change us is He will come to us. So I'd like to pray real quick. I know John prayed, but I want to pray. And as I pray, I want to give myself a chance to pray and ask God to open my eyes. And I want to give you guys a chance because like I said, I'm not so concerned about what I say as long as what I say is biblical because there's a good chance that every one of us can hear God's voice and take something completely different than the person sitting right next to us. Because that's how Jesus takes truth and he applies it to my heart. And he takes truth and he applies it to your heart. And so I don't have to worry about what your interpretation of what God's truth is or how that came to your heart. I just 
pray to God on behalf of all of us and for myself that we see Jesus in the text tonight. And then every time when Jesus showed up in the Gospels, he always, he always had a thing that people could do. He always had the answer. He had the healing. He had, he had the command. He, he, he would say, you know, I want to be your disciple. Okay, well, go do this, and then you can be my disciple. He always came with an answer. And so if we come and we see Jesus, then I think we can find answers no matter what our problem is. Our problem is irrelevant. What's relevant is that the answer is here. And that if he opens our eyes to see it, then we'll understand it and we'll know what he wants us to do. So if, if you believe that, then I want you to extend your faith and ask Jesus to come and minister to all of us tonight. Heavenly Father, we are humbled by the opportunity to see your face tonight. Father, we are, we are humbled by your presence in our praise. We are humbled that you chose us out of all the people on the earth, Father, to have the opportunity to enter into relationship with you, Father. Help us never take that for granted. Be with us, Jesus. Open your word to us, Father, that we can see it and understand it and know it is true and live it out no matter the consequences, Father. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to call the sermon tonight, Pressing Towards Jesus. And if you look at three... Philippians 3, verse 14, Paul writes, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. This letter, and we'll look at kind of what Philippians is written at, it's a pastoral letter. It's, it's a letter where Paul is writing to people he loves and he's giving them advice. And so and when we read, especially, a, well, every, everywhere in the Bible, but especially a pastoral type of letter, we really need to take the place of a student. I think, I'm sure there's many ways to approach a text, but I thought of three. There's, there's students, and a student approaches to have the text inform them and equip them to do something, right? If you go to college and take a course on engineering, you're doing that so that you can approach the class, the class will inform you, and then you will be able to go and do whatever it is the class was on. That is the student mindset. But then there's the scribes and the Pharisees, right? The scribe approaches a text to see if in the text is any error, and then to observe the lives of those around him and see if there's any errors in the lives around him. And then there's the Pharisees who approach the text and seek to create a law out of it. We need to, create, we need to come to Scripture, and we need to come to this text as students. Paul wrote from the perspective of a pastor, a teacher, Saying, teaching us something, if we're going to get it, we have to assume the position of a student, which is we don't filter this information, we don't pick and choose, our lives depend on getting this right. So we take what God has given us in the teacher, and we absorb it into our life, and in living it out, we see the fruit of those classes. So if we look at this verse, <clears throat> verse 14 says, I press towards the mark of the high for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now this verse was all by itself. When I read it this morning, I just had two questions that I would see. If this verse were all by itself, we would have to answer, first of all, what, what, what is Paul's motivation to press, to press on to the high call of God? What, what motivates Paul to do this? And then the second question I would have, what does it mean to press? What, what, is that, what does that word mean? It's kind of an ambiguous word, to press. I mean, you can press like just lightly rest your finger on something. Or you can press like put your shoulder to something. Or you can press like 
just pushing in through the door, just pressing. Well, thankfully, this verse doesn't stand alone. And the people that received this letter, they not only received the whole context of the letter, but they knew who wrote the letter. And when Paul said, I press on, that immediately would have created a picture for the people that knew his life. Because when Paul pressed, it was pedal to the metal. It was all the way down. It was no holds barred. It was live like there's no tomorrow. It was all the way. That was the life he lived his whole life. And these people knew who Paul were. So they would have understood when he said, I press towards the mark. And when he was encouraging them to press towards the mark, he even says it a verse down to emulate me, to press like I press. So when Paul says, I press towards the mark, he's inviting us to press towards the mark in the same way that he's pressing towards the mark. And so what we want to look at tonight, because I read a verse like this and I want that. I read a verse like, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And I see a life that's so absorbed in something that there's not really much in the way of distractions for that life. I see a life that's lived so purposefully that it has no time to waste. I see a life with so much purpose that there's never time to stop and question. There's never time for boredom. I see purpose. I see motivation. I see energy. I see life. And I want that for myself. I want to experience a life that's not wasted. A life that's not just lived in what I'm capable of. A life that's not bound to the limitations of what everyone around me is doing. I want to live a Paul kind of, I press towards the mark of the high calling. That I might get that prize. I look at that and so I immediately want to ask, okay, so Paul, you did that, so how can we do that? And thankfully, the whole chapter is Paul explaining how we press towards the mark. Paul lays out in no uncertain terms exactly how we can press towards the mark. There's, there's, no ambigua- there's no, nothing ambiguous here. There's no misleading information. There's a very clear way that we can tonight, through the power of God, surrender our lives and experience His life flow through us until our lives begin to press towards a mark, to push and push and push towards a mark, which is the prize of the high call of Jesus Christ. So I want to go to verse 1, but before we look at 3 verse 1, and you all are well taught enough to know that you always want to look at the context. Because tone's a big deal. There, you know, is, is he angry when he writes? Is he upset when he writes? What is the purpose of the letter? And it, it's really interesting in studying this today. Flip, the, the church of Philippi, he says at the end of the chapter, is the only church that looked after his needs. They're the only church that sent money after him. He started this church with first just one convert, Lydia, down by the river. It was a, there were so few Jews in the town that they didn't even have a synagogue. He had to go down to the river. And there he formed what commentators would call his favorite church because they never let him down. They always had his back. They were always loyal. They were always looking after him. Every time he came, they took care of all of his needs. When he left, they sent money after him. They were always there, always taking care of him. When you compare that to churches like Galatia or Corinthians, so many of the other churches, he had to send authoritative letters and call them back. And I read where you know, liberal theologians are always trying to take everything out of the Bible. But liberal theologians that want to take this book out of the Bible, their argument was that this is not very much like Paul, this 
letter because he doesn't set out like an exact theological treatise. It's not like Romans or Galatians where he's just driving home a theology. This is a different kind of letter. And then you look at the context. This letter was written. So Paul's, you know, we could spend all night talking about Paul going back and forth to Philippi, but eventually he goes to jail. And it's been 11 years approximately since he's seen this church at Philippi. Philippi. And you know how much time goes on 11 years. But this church hadn't forgot him. So they send Epaphroditus after him. He's there in prison, and Epaphroditus shows up. He says that Epaphroditus loved him and looked after him so much and so well that he risked his life and then fell ill. And he fell so ill that he would have died from it were it not for the prayers of Paul and the other saints there in Rome. And he was apparently sick for such a long time. It was 700 miles from Philippi to Rome. And he was apparently so sick for so long that news traveled back to Philippi. And it's recorded that Epaphroditus began to worry more about the people in Philippi feeling bad for him than he was worried about himself. So when Epaphroditus has come and brought this stuff for Paul, he's, it says that he risked his life for Paul. He falls sick. Paul looks after him. He gets well. And now Epaphroditus brings this letter back to the church at Philippi. And so this letter is essentially a thank you note. That's essentially Paul telling the church of Philippi, thank you for not forgetting me. When, when so many other people have forgotten me, thank you for not forgetting me. So chapter, chapter 1, he talks about how much he loves them and how much he appreciates their love and concern for him. And he kind of catches them up on how life has been in prison. And then chapter 2, we know he encourages them. We know the kenosis, right? Christ emptied himself and became of no reputation. He's encouraging this church that he loves. You be like Christ. And then he talks about, well, if I get out, I'm, I plan to come back, and Timothy's going to come and, and take care of you soon. So it, it's, kind of like a, it's kind of like a letter between friends. He's just ca- catching them up. And then we come to chapter 3, and, and, and I think there's a definite change in tone in chapter 3. Because in chapter 3, it starts off like this. Finally, my brethren. When you say, finally, my brethren, I believe that Paul is leaving the church of Philippians with critical advice. This is a mature church. This is a healthy church. This is a church that's doing well, that's looking after him. And so what is Paul going to tell this church? What's he going to leave them in order for them to secure that legacy, to make sure that that reputation, that that life that they're experiencing in Christ, in the church, what's Paul going to leave them with so that that life can continue, so that life doesn't die, so that all the health that's been there all these years in this church doesn't just go away? And I think that's exactly what's on Paul's mind when he writes chapter 3. I think Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, is praying, God, what can I send to this church to encourage them to hold on, to go for another generation, for a generation after that? What can I leave them with and encourage them with so that they don't let go of the plow? They've been good to me. Jesus, you remember how good they've been to me. You be good to them. And, And give me... Something that will help them hold on, that will help them not fall away like so many other churches, that will help them live purpose-filled lives and not get sucked into the drudgery of living in a Roman town with Greeks and trade and everything going on around them, that their lives wouldn't be defined by that, but that their lives would continue to be defined. They were known all around that area for their generosity. If you remember in Corinthians, he talks about the Macedonians sending money. They were known. They, were, they had good fruit. And so Paul's asking how... What advice can I give them to maintain that, to protect that, to keep that? And for us, I think we look at it tonight, and, 
And we, we want to know how can we press? How can we arrange our lives in such a way that the fruit of it and the health of it becomes evident and that the control of Jesus over our life becomes evident and that the stamp of Jesus in our life becomes evident. How can we live that way? How can we experience Jesus like Paul experienced Jesus? And I say like Paul experienced Jesus because this whole chapter is Paul using himself as an example. He's saying, be like me. I've walked in front of you and here I am ready to die if necessary and I'm, I'm just as happy as a clam. He was having a good time. He wasn't worried about death. And so he's encouraging them. These are things that I did, and Jesus was never faithless to me. He was always faithful to me. When we do these things, Jesus is faithful and just to come and to help us. So I think knowing that helps us dig into this chapter and apply it to our lives in a very immediate and personal way. Because I know I want to hold on to Jesus. And I know that Anybody in this room, myself included, is only two or three bad decisions away from really screwing up our own lives if, if God's grace were to leave us. And I know that none of us are strong apart from His Spirit. And I know that none of us have anything except Jesus. And anything that we have that's not Jesus is going to get burned up. So I want to hold on. And I want to, as David said, search me and try me, O Lord. See if there be any wicked way in me. Don't let me get so caught up on what everybody else is doing in small concentric circles and what everybody else is doing in national circles and what everybody else is doing in global circles that it never comes home here. Ever learning but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Always informed about truth but never coming to a place where people look at you and think that man is the truth. That man is Christ. And so if that's our heart tonight... I want to encourage you that I think there are some things here that can really help us. So the first thing in verses 1 and 2, well, let's read 1 to 6. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. So Paul's saying, I'm, I'm saying this again. You guys know this. To me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision or false circumcision. For we are of the circumcision which worship God and the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he have whereof he might trust in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and as of touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal and persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So what's Paul saying? He's starting off what I believe is the climax of his letter. He's starting off the most important thing he can think to tell these people with a warning. And it's a severe warning. We live in a, in a society that has, has confused the, the word love with the word acceptance. And has confused the word to care for someone with silence. That's not biblical. Because the biblical fact is that there's this thing called truth. That is unaffected by our emotions and the wind of change and the wind of culture. It just stands there forever. And Paul says this in verse 2. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. And beware of the false circumcision. We live in a world that there's all sorts of warning signs around 
But most of those warning signs are there because some tragedy has already happened. You know, if you're ever on the beach and you see a, a sign of somebody drowning in a low tide or high tide, you know somebody probably drowned right there. And so they put that sign there to tell you, don't do what this guy did. Or sometimes they'll put a barrier up with an explanation. You know, somebody fell off this cliffside, so, so we stopped you. So a warning sign normally tells us about something that's, that's already happened. Somebody did this already, and it turned out badly. So don't do it. But how many of us have seen those warning signs and ignored them? You know, we all do it. It says, stay on the trail. We say, never mind. It says, don't wander off. You get lost. We say, we can figure it out. We can get there. But see, the fact is that most of those things we probably aren't going to suffer severe consequences from in this life. But spiritually, when we neglect warning signs, we, we do pay the consequences for ignoring those warning signs. Whether we see that we're experiencing it or not, we are. When we break a clear warning, we will experience the consequences of breaking the warning. Because here's the thing, you know, if teenagers, you know, that sometimes like to do stuff like find where there's a warehouse and there's a security guard and when he's sleeping they can sneak by and do some vandalism and then sneak back out and he never catches them, right? And there's the thrill of what if we get caught, but they pulled, on, pulled it off. Well, here's the thing in the spiritual realm, guys, is that there's nothing we ever do that we ever get away with. Nothing. From both the devil watching you and God watching you, what you do is seen. And what you know is known. So you know when you break God's law. You know when you transgress. You know when the warning sign says, no, you don't, don't, don't do that. And we go ahead and do it anyway. You have to know that there will be consequences. A God who is capable of telling us that every idle word that we speak, we will give account for. The God that has that capability, do you think you're going to slip one by him while he's sleeping? Do you think there's any chance that you can do anything that he doesn't know about? There's no chance. And see, Paul knows the truth of this, and that's why he starts it off with a warning. Because human nature says, I can get away with it. Because... We're going where we want to go is we want this relationship with God that's true and authentic, right? We want a real living relationship with God. We don't want to live our whole life staring at verses and filling up a pew with no heart connection to the creator of the universe. We actually want to experience God in our lives, right? Are we there? Are we there? Is that what we want? If we want that, then we need to hear the warning. Because the warning sign says don't do that. To do that is to invite heartache. To do that is to invite death. To do that is to invite the consequences of breaking the warning. And what we can do to fool each other, we can never do to fool God. And so Paul starts it off with a warning because we all need to check. Now, verse 2, almost everybody, all the commentators I read, they would all say, well, this is Judaizers. Well, what was the first rule of seeing Jesus tonight? We don't apply this to other people. See, we could say, well, that was the Judaizers. We could say that was the Pharisees. We could say that was the scribes. But how is that? Search me and try me, O Lord. See if there be any wicked way in me. Try my secret heart. Don't just take care of what's on the surface. Don't just take care of what other people can see. Don't just polish up my exterior, but really get down in where it matters. Get down where you see. It says that the heart is incredibly deceitful. Who can know it? Well, God knows it. So we look to the God who knows it, and we say, expose my heart. Well, Paul just launches into a tirade. He says, 
They are dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. What kind of, what kind of guy talks like that? We don't talk like that. <laughs> I'd get churched if I called you all dogs. <laughs> and I'm not going to. But I think we have to ask ourselves, why did Paul start off his encouragement to holiness with this severe of a warning? Why would he start off by saying, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the false circumcision? What's he getting at? Well, if we want to find that out, we have to ask ourselves, what does he mean when he says that? What does he mean by beware of the dogs? You know, we live in a world that we're getting more and more scared to stand up for what we know is true. I read a commentator said this about, about this being strong language, and he said, yet surely we may say that zeal for truth must sometimes show itself in honest indignation against the willfulness and blindness of those who are misleading others. The short story of that is that if we love truth, we hate lies. If we do not hate lies, we do not love truth. If we do not despise ourselves if we lie, if we do not despise the act of lying, if we do not despise listening to lies, then we do not love truth. But Paul loved truth. And so he hated lies. So I think that any time that we read a negative passage, we need to ask ourselves two questions. The first one that we talked about, see if there be any wicked way in me. There's a, maybe, maybe it does not apply to you. Maybe it doesn't apply to me. But we don't know that if we don't pray that, right? We don't know what's in our heart unless God reveals it. And if we're not willing to pray the prayer, if we're not willing to be honest enough to go before God's word and say, if there be a wicked way in me, show me. If we're not at that level of honesty, then why do we think that we will actually get the full power of God's word unleashed in our life? And then the second thing is, we have to come to a place where we become so absolutely convinced that whatever truth is, when God reveals it to us, that we will let nothing stop us from putting that in practice in our life. Regardless of whether anybody else does it or not. Regardless of whether or not your peer, peer group is interested in what you saw, or if your friends or your family, whatever it is, if we see truth, we've got to get to the place where all that matters is that I live worthy of him who called me. Otherwise, we're not handling the word of God in truth. We're handling the word of God deceptively. We're, we're being a hypocrite to ourselves. And God's not fooled. And the results of our lives won't fool anyone either. So we ask ourselves a question. What are dogs? Let's start there. It says, beware dogs. I'm not going to turn to all the verses because I don't want to run real long. But if you look up in Proverbs 26, 11, it says, As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. And Jesus in Matthew 7 said, Give not that which is holy to dogs, neither cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under feet and turn again and rend you. And then in Revelations 22, verse 14 and 15, it says, Blessed are they who do his commandments, they that may have the right of the, to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers, and whoremongers, and murderers, and idolaters, and whosoever loveth, and maketh a lie. So in light of those scriptures, what do we say that Paul means when he says, beware of dogs? Well, from Solomon's account, I think what he means is beware of fools. 
It says, like a dog returned to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. Well, from that verse in Revelations, I think we have a contrast, almost like in Proverbs, where in Revelations it says, blessed are those who do his commands. They will enter into the city. Outside the city are dogs and sorcerers and immorality. And it's interesting that at the end of the verse it says, those who love lies and make lies, both alike are separate. So in and in the Middle Eastern culture of when this Bible was written, dogs weren't family pets. They weren't what you invite into dog, and they were just feral beasts for the most part. They were just, they were just kind of like dangerous vultures. They just wandered around. So when they said dogs, that's what picture people would have in their mind, not a well-manicured. And it's just this roaming, this restless, this outside and inside, can't be trusted, here, there, and everywhere, never coming under any kind of submission, just roaming around, just the dogs, just looking for their next piece of meat. Unsurrendered, unsubmitted, unaffected by your kicks and your get out of here. And Jesus and Paul and Solomon all together tell us, don't be like that. Don't, don't be like an animal. Let about by your brute desires. I think that by dogs, to me, he's talking about the people that are really kind of not in the church directly. They're just kind of here, there, and everywhere in the periphery. Beware of those. Jesus said, beware if you give what's holy to a dog. It will turn around and it will trample it and then it will rend you. So beware of those who have no love for truth, no desire for truth, no interest in truth. Beware of them. Be careful around them. And then the next one he said was, beware of evildoers or evil workers. We have to be really careful when we read the Bible that we don't immediately paint a middle picture and move on because lots of times our middle pictures aren't exactly what the Bible is saying when he says evil workers. When we say evil workers, what immediately pops into our mind? We've got Adolf Hitler. We've got... You know, the Oklahoma City bomber, those people are evil workers. But is that what Paul was talking about? Well, in Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of the Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And in your name cast out devils, and in your name done many wonderful works. And then I will pro profess unto them, Depart from me, you who work iniquity. And Paul later, writing to Titus, says this, Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them who are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and their conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and in, unto every good work they are reprobate. So evil worker in that sense is not Adolf Hitler, and it's not whoever we think of as an incredibly evil person. An evil worker is one who takes the name of Christ in his mouth but lives for himself. He's identified in all of those passages, those are church people he's talking about. Those are people with some level of outward relationship with Jesus. Lord, Lord, didn't we do this, this, and this? What are all of this, this, and this? They're all external, right? And then in Titus, when he says, but in works, they profess that they know God, but in works, they deny him. That word abominable, that's a 
funny word, but what it means is idolatrous. And then the word disobedience, pretty obvious, and unto every good work, reprobate. The word reprobate, we always get a picture of just a bad person in our mind. But that's not, the, that's not the scriptural picture of the word reprobate. The scriptural picture is something that was tried and found wanting. It was something that, you know, a potter went out to the field and got a lump of clay and he wanted to make a bowl. And he started making it with the clay and there was impurities in it, so he had to go smaller. He went to a cup and he was making it and more impurities were in there, so he couldn't do anything with the clay, so he had to chuck it and go get a new piece. That piece of clay is reprobate. So what's being talked about here isn't what we would call bad people. What's being talked about here is people who are still only externally involved with Jesus Christ. There are people who with their mouth profess to know him, but in their heart they're far from him. In their heart they're idolatrous. And in their heart they're disobedient. And in their works, their works don't stand up to the test. Their works don't meet the test of having been worked by God. So they have a show of religion, but they lack the power that goes behind a relationship with God. So we have the dogs and we have the evil workers, and now we come to the false circumcision. If you can turn over to Colossians, I want you guys to see this. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 13. And if, I mean, you guys all, all know this, but just, just to get us all on the same page, Paul's constant problem in all of his churches were the Judaizers. Judaizers were Jews that agreed with this idea that Jesus must be the Christ, and that were okay with Jews coming to Christ, but just make sure you get circumcised. Because if you're not circumcised, you're not saved. And Paul fought that and fought that. So in Colossians, he's writing and he's, and he's warning the Colossians here. And he says, uh, Colossians 2, starting in verse 6, he says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith if you've been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy, through vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of this world, and not after Christ. For in Christ dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein you also are risen with him through faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, Flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So what's Paul driving at there? Verse 11. Let's look at the verse 11. It says, In whom also ye are circumcised. So there is still a circumcision going on. There is still something that happens. But now it's not external, it's internal. And see, once again, we can read this and say, Well, that's interesting history. You know, uh, Judaizers and all this stuff. But I'm telling you that if Paul was alive today, he would take out the phrase false circumcision and put in false conversion. Because when we fool ourselves into thinking that there's any external act we can do to save ourselves, i.e. a prayer, or i.e. hanging out with the right people, or i.e. 
going here or doing that, when we begin to substitute the work of Christ in our life for what I'm doing, when I say that I, pr- I prayed a prayer so, so I'm saved, that's the same problem that Paul is facing with Galatia. Your faith can't be in what you did. It has to be in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and when the person of Jesus Christ comes into your heart, you know it. You cannot go, it says, you who were dead in your sins, he quickened. You cannot go from dead to alive and not know it. There's an internal work that happens at salvation. It happens at salvation because salvation is real. If that internal work never happens, we haven't been saved. See, guys, I don't believe that this is like, like a help manual. I think this is reality. Like, I think that if it says that you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, he is now quickened and made alive, that I expect that if he were to quicken and make me alive, that something so transformative would happen to who I am as a person that I couldn't help but know that my uncircumcised heart became circumcised, that I'd have no way of not knowing that that had happened. And that's what Paul's telling him. He's saying there are people that are all three of these things, what it comes down to and what we'll see in the next verses. All three of these types, the dogs and the evil workers and the false circumcision, they all come down to this. People who are externally religious. People who have a form of godliness but deny the power. People who hang out in the right crowd but can't live the right way. People who in the end of their life are found reprobate, not having what they need to stand before Christ. Who gets into heaven? Jesus gets into heaven. You don't get into heaven. Jesus gets into heaven. Jesus has to take over our life. He has to transform who we are. And so Paul's saying, beware of anyone without an internal change, without such a transformation that they are nearly unrecognizable from who they were. That, that you have trouble picturing who they used to be compared to who they are now. If, if you still see that person and they look at, like exactly the same as they were yesterday, watch out. Watch out. And what was the first rule that we said about seeing Jesus tonight? We start by applying it here. See if we're looking around the room saying, I wonder who doesn't have it. Or No, we look here. Is my life being lived right now in a lack of power? Is my life being lived right now in a shortage of the presence of Jesus Christ? This is where I start with a warning. Don't continue to live that way. See, God's word is made to quicken and make alive. If we never apply it to ourselves, we won't be made alive by its quickening power. It says that they were different because they mixed faith with what they heard. Faith isn't an off-the-shelf product. It's something that's in here. It's where hearing God's word, I believe, above all circumstances and beyond all what-ifs, that it's true. And so I'll, I'll live my life like it's true. It's that simple. It's just seeing it and taking it, not because you are worth it, not because you have spiritually attained a level, but because you believe the one who promised it to you is faithful and just. And so you say, whatever my shortage is, if I identify in any way with any of those three groups of people, whatever my shortage is, he is faithful and just to set me free from external religion in that area of my life. His power is capable of overwhelming my inadequacy, my inability to be what I need to be. His power is capable of overwhelming that. Why? Because we who were dead, he is made alive. 
We who were lost in our transgressions and sin, he has opened blind eyes and he has opened deaf ears. And that's why I said, when Jesus comes to us tonight, when you sit there and you say, Jesus, I'm broken, but I want fixed, then he comes to you and says, go and do this. And then come and follow me. But I believe that every time he comes to us, he always says, go and do this and then come and follow me. That was a pattern he did throughout all the Gospels. He never turned anybody away and said, no, you can't be my disciple. He always said, go and do this and then come and follow me. To the rich young ruler who had everything going right in his life, he said, go and do this and then come follow me. Every one of them, over and over again, they would come to him and say, I want to follow you, Jesus. And what did he say? Well, come, come on. Well, I've got to go bury my dead first. Let the dead bury their, their dead. You come and follow me. There was, there was something they had to do first. They had to let go of their family. They had to let go of the stability and the security. They had to do that first and then come follow me. Or the man who had the yoke of oxen. He had to let go of those material goods, that material hold on his life. He had to let that go and then come follow Jesus. Why is that in there? If it's not to teach us that when Jesus comes to us, there's something he's going to tell us that we can do so that we can follow him. Because the fact is we're not following him if we're not right now because there's something that's holding us back. And so it's his grace and mercy that when he comes, he will reveal that to us. I don't think we're supposed to live confused lives. I don't think we're supposed to live in a smoky realm of uncertainty. That's the devil's work. The devil's work is to confuse us until we don't know which way's up and which way's south and which way's north. And we've got no idea where we're going or why we're here or what we're doing here. We're just in it for the ride and we hope it doesn't get any worse. That's the devil's work, guys. Everybody that Jesus makes alive, it's supposed to be a transformative thing from death to life. What is the difference between a dead man and a live man? You put a dead man in a chair, he can stay there as long as you want him to stay there. You put a live man, and after an hour or so, he's got to get up and move, right? Are we any less? If the spirit that raised up Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in our body and it quickens our mortal body, then I suggest to you that any time we begin to stagnate and sit still, that we begin to die spiritually, that we begin to get farther away from Jesus Christ. And by sit still, I don't mean sit still and read the Word. I mean sit still and close your Bible. and Sit still and <clears throat> give in to the confusion and give in to the doubts. So we see that Paul starts it off with a warning. If you turn back to Philippians. <clears throat> and the reason I, I say that I believe all of those things were external, because if you read 3 to 6, Paul goes on to list all the external things that he did. He'd done so many external things to be right with God that from the outside, everyone judged him to be the most righteous person that they'd ever met. And yet he says, in verse 6, he says, concerning zeal and persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is by the law, and all these things, I was blameless. And then read verse 7. He says, but what things were gain to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I might win Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but having that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. See, Paul had done all the external stuff. And he had found that at the end of all the external stuff, there was no salvation. 
But there was something he had to do. See, the, there's always two sides to every track, right? So a legalist reads the gospel and says, well, yeah, the, Jesus did it all, but... And then, you know, a, a liberal person or a person that doesn't want to be confined by anything, they'll say, well, it's all grace, brother. And if I had to do any works, well, then it wouldn't be faith, would it? It would have to be grace. So it's just no works. That's not biblical. You know, I heard one man say that truth is like a razor's edge, but with error, you can go a thousand miles in any direction. I think that truth is always held in tension. There's always the balancing of, yes, that, but also this, back and forth, because that's truth. And when we stop living in tension, it's probably because we've fallen into one ditch or another. When we stop having to weigh out, am I on the right way? Search me, Lord. Help me be on this path. Help me get this right. When we stop doing that, we've probably fallen into one ditch or the other. We've probably let go of the rope somewhere. When we don't have that tension in our life that I need God today to keep me on this path of righteousness. When we lose that tension in our life, we've probably fallen in a ditch. So we come to Paul and Paul says, so all these external things, they didn't help me at all. So what did he do? Did he go grab himself a pool and get a margarita and sit by the pool all day? Well, you know, God saved me. It's all God. Well, no, he did something. He says, but those things which were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all these things. And I do count them but dung that I might win Christ. Three times, Paul basically says the same thing over and over and over. Three times, he just repeats himself. He's using slightly different words, but he's saying, I counted it all lost. I counted it all lost, and I counted it all lost. And, and he says, I counted it all lost for Christ, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, and that I might win Christ. Three times he's just repeating himself. Why would he do that? Because he could have just said, for all things I count lost for Christ. That's essentially the same thing as saying three times over again. If, but for the fact that he was emphasizing something. Because see, what Paul gave up here, and what I think Christ is calling us to give up, was not just sins. Obviously, we have to give up sin and repentance to come to Jesus Christ. But what does Paul list here as the things that he counted as lost that he might obtain Christ? It wasn't pornography. I mean, I guarantee you that if he struggled with that, he gave that up. That was part of his repentance. But his focus here is on having pure religion. His focus here is on being right with Jesus Christ and experiencing the change that Jesus Christ brings into a life. So what does Paul use to tell us that? I think that what Paul counted as lost for the excellency of Christ was his identity. See, Paul had an identity before he came to Christ. He was somebody. He was respected. Everybody that observed his life viewed him as a very righteous man. He was probably from a more affluent family. He was very well educated in an uneducated world. In the elite of his country, he was one of the elites. He had it all. When they looked for somebody to go and execute Christians, he was the man. He was zealous as concerning the law. He was blameless. And then he met Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus Christ demand for all of us? That if I am to come in and save you, if I am to be your Savior, I will be your Lord. 
No exceptions. If you want me as Savior, you will have me as Lord. That is the gospel. The gospel is this, that we can't do it, that we can't reach heaven, that we have no power in our flesh by our might. The smartest of us, the best of us, the the most well-intentioned of us don't have the ability to meet God's standard. So Jesus Christ came and he took our place and he did all the work. And so he comes to us and says, I offer you salvation. What is our response? Our response is surrender. Our response is open-hearted, no-holds-barred surrender. Without that, he's not our Lord. You who were presenting your members as slaves to sin, now present them as slaves to righteousness. We still have a master. We still have someone calling the shot. Salvation is not uh, like a club med card that we use at the airport to make things a little bit more comfortable in our life. Salvation is not a social group that we identify with to derive a little bit more comfort on our time here. Salvation is a work of God whereby He intends to be glorified by your life. He intends to come and take over your life to the point that He can receive glory from it. So it is hypocritical of us to say, I want to experience Jesus and not give him complete and utter control over our life. It's dishonest. If we want to experience Jesus as our Savior, we must first experience him as our Lord. Because on that cross, he purchased our debt. If we are to receive the reward of his suffering, he will receive the reward of his suffering, which is us. He intends to see how we are spent. If we're a bank account that Jesus picked up, he intends to see how the remainder of our time here is spent. He intends to receive glory from that. And I want to encourage you guys to make this personal. We can... We will literally, myself, I'm talking to myself here, we will waste our life waiting for other people to make us holy. We will waste our life waiting for other people to tell us where God's power comes from, how to walk in God's power, how to have a true relationship with God, how to experience God's presence in a day-by-day way. We will waste our lives. We will get old, we will die, and we will not experience it. If we are constantly unwilling to face the fact that if Jesus will be our Savior, He will be our Lord. See, Paul had to give up everything that ever made Paul Paul. Everything that ever gave Paul purpose, every dream he ever had, died the day he met Jesus Christ. Every aspiration that he ever had died the day he met Jesus Christ. And that's what I mean when I say that when the dead are raised to life, there is a transformation that takes place. There is a heathen, bloodthirsty member of ISIS who the next day is going to the mosque and telling people about Jesus. That's salvation. And that's what we should be looking for in our own lives. We should be looking for that kind of power. We should be looking for the kind of power that raises the dead to life. We shouldn't be happy with what we see around us. We shouldn't be satisfied with other people's level of spirituality. 
But I'm telling you that it is a joke to think that you will experience God's presence if you are not going to submit to Him as your Lord. If you are not willing to go and say, how am I supposed to live my life? What is my life supposed to look like according to this? Well, then you're just wasting your time. Because you don't know what your life's supposed to look like apart from this. You don't have any idea. And so Paul's telling, what I believe, what he's warning the Philippians here. Is he saying, guys, go ahead and give up your identity. Lay it all down. Just like me, I laid it all down and look what Jesus did for me. I counted everything that I had ever gained, every hope of of being something, every hope of being respected, every hope of having that comfortable lifestyle, the wife and the kids, every hope I ever had, I had pinned on this lifestyle of exterior works that everybody saw and everybody respected. And I'm telling you guys that what I have in Jesus is way better than what I had when I was serving myself, when I was idolatrous. Well, how can we apply this to our life? Well, we're all sitting here and we're all hearing things. And in all of our hearts, myself included, we're all convicted about things. If you're convicted about something, could that be a request from your Lord for a behavior change? Maybe we need to stop asking the Christ silencing question, which is, I know, but can I? Is it sin? You guys, we live our life at that level. We won't experience any of this. Throw it away. Yeah, you, we can find things all over that maybe aren't technically exactly sin. But that's not what we were called to. We weren't called to live and see what we can get away with. We weren't called to live as close to the line of the old man as what we were. We were called to something way higher and way better. And how is the world going to know that what we have is better if it looks just like theirs? They're not going to know any difference. What is is evangelism going to be if I go to them and say, look, you can be like me, as miserable and sad as you are right now. As confused and lost as you are right now, I offer you the same thing. We're supposed to be going to them and they're supposed to look at us like Paul's relatives would have looked at him when he came back to the city and like, wow, I don't know what happened, but that's not the same guy that we sent out of here. That's what the world needs to see. And that comes when we surrender this need to prop up our dumb identity. You guys, if this word is true then who Jake Fabish is, is going to disappear and die. That means all of Jake Fabish's plans are going away. If I'm okay with that, then he's my Lord and Savior. If I'm going to fight that, then he won't be my Lord and Savior. And it says in Romans, he'll give me what I want. He will turn me over to the version of God that I submit to him that I want him to be. He'll just let me think that's how he is. And that's condemnation. That's judgment. The true God of the universe is a God that will always call us higher. If we're satiated, if we're okay with how we've got this all figured out, or if we're okay with quieting that still small voice when we're at church and we know that things aren't right, and then we have the opportunity to go home and make things right in the quiet, but everybody's going to go watch a movie, so 
go watch a movie. Or when we face things in our life that we know are wrong and we know should be dealt with, but not today, I'll take care of it tomorrow. All these things that we waste our life, one decision at a time. None of us are getting any younger. None of us are getting any more life. It's going behind us. It's not going in front of us. So it's time that we start living for the glory of the king who paid the price to see us exhibit his glory to a lost and dying world. It's time that we gave the Savior his ransom. It's time that we turned over the reins of our life and begin to live in a way that begin to exhibit the worth that we place on his sacrifice. Which means if I'm sitting in this room and I'm six and I hear something that I believe I should go home and do, like be kind to my brother, I should do it. That's simple. See, we get in our heads and we make it so complicated, but I think it is just that simple. What did the rich young ruler have to do to follow Jesus and enjoy him for all eternity? Just one thing. Just one thing that he never would have regretted. Just one thing. You guys, we've got to be serious about this. If the Bible says that you need to do this, just jump on it. Don't wait till everybody else gets in line and pushes you behind it. If the, if the Bible makes a clear command, we need to do it. See, we live in an age that's unfortunate because if we didn't have the internet and if we didn't have so much ability to jump in a car and drive around and know such a wide circle, we would simplify this a lot. But because we read everything in the context of what everybody else is doing, we miss so much. And it's really just this simple. What was, the, what was the Peter's message that got 3,000 people saved? It wasn't very complicated. He said, repent from your sins and be baptized and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, there's a start. Have we done that? Okay, well then come and follow me. And then he'll show you the next thing. But it, when we stop just being willing to just take him at his word, and we, we stop just, what, what's your command today? Here I go. What we show when we do that is we don't believe that he's wise and that he's good. Our disbelief tells the world and God what we believe about God ultimately. And that is why Hebrews says that those who come to him must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And so what I believe that Paul is telling all of us is beware of allowing religion to steal your surrender. Because the fact is, Jesus comes to us and he says, pick up your cross and follow me. So we shoulder up underneath that thing and then we look over and we see somebody in the jacuzzi and we're like, well, that's silly. Why would I do this? I'll go to the jacuzzi. Man-made religion steals your ability to experience God's presence. If Jesus tells you to pick up your cross and follow him, you need to get on that cross. And I stress again, guys, that I so much talk today about what people perceive God to tell them isn't from time spent in his word. And that troubles me. God's will is primarily revealed in his word. And everything that is his will will line up with his word. He might reveal his will to you specifically in a certain way that is different than how his will is applied to me, but it will always line up with his word.
we will never believe a lie and be in line with God's word. God's will to us is never to believe in a lie. God's will for us is never to abandon one iota of truth. And that's where it becomes so important that we get alone and we hear God's voice for ourselves. You guys aren't too young to start. You guys can hear God's voice. You don't have to wait for everybody to come up and help you do it. But I will tell you that you won't have the desire to do it if your heart hasn't been transformed and renewed. If you have no desire for it, then that's where we've got to start is with the heart. So we say that Paul is telling them to beware of religion that would silence the call of God on their life. And then the next step is to go ahead and surrender your identity. I think your identity is the hardest thing for us to surrender. Your identity is just what you like about yourself, what you want people to think about you, who you are. And God tells us to lay that down. And the way I think most of the time he tells us to lay that down is he just slowly kills off a piece of us at a time. I think even our best intentions, you know, I'm going to go do this for God, and then are you going to let him kill you? Are you going to let that part of your identity go? Because see, everything that Paul did up to that moment was for God, right? But here's the thing, guys. It happened to Paul, and what Paul is trying to tell us is that it'll happen to you too. That at the point of surrender, the most wonderful thing in all the world happens. For the first time in your life, your eyes can be opened to real beauty. At the point when you allow the old Jew to die, your eyes for the first time will be opened to what is truly beautiful. See, it's all lies, guys. What is the devil? The father of lies, right? So what is the devil going to feed us about our identity? And we've got to hold on to that, that we've got to attain that, that we've got to be that, that we've got to have that to reach happiness. That if we don't get X, Y, or Z, that if we don't experience X, Y, or Z, that if we aren't recognized for X, Y, or Z, that we'll never be happy. You come to Jesus and he's going to take that away and say, do you still believe me? And guys, idolatry is when we choose the thing that God's trying to get rid of over God. When God says, give me that part of your life, and you say, well, I'm going to hang on to that. You know, last night at prison, the first time I ever really looked at Herod, but it was interesting that Herod, it says, he went and heard John, and the Greek word there could mean multiple times. But it says he heard him gladly, and then it even goes so far as to say Herod did many things. But was, was Herod all right? No. What happened? At some point... John said, if you want to be baptized, you've got to let go of that. That thing that identifies you, you've got to let go of that. And then ultimately, Herod was okay with taking John's head off, even though he knew he was a holy man, even though he knew he was a just man, even though no fault of John the Baptist, even though he had been to him and recognized the power of God and the truth of God, even though all those things, he was still willing to cut his head off. Why? Why? Because better John's head than my wife. 
That's a decision that we confront every single day. Well, I'd rather hang on to this than be that. If I let go of that, what will people think of me? If I stand up here and now, what will people say about me? If I give that up, what about my kids? How will I be perceived? See, in all those ways, we're tempted to idolatry. We're tempted to substitute what God's telling us is the best thing for something that's less than what he has for us. And so Paul says, go ahead and surrender it. And here's the thing, guys. Read verse 10. Paul says, I did all of these things. And notice the word that right there. It says, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable to his death, if by any means I shall attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Now, I was following him on the first two. Who doesn't want to know God and who doesn't want the power? But the fellowship of his suffering and being conformed to his death? Nobody wants that. Nobody raises their hand and says, yeah, that's me. But Paul did. Notice the word that. Paul raised his hand and said, sign me up for that. The fellowship of your suffering part, that thing where I get to suffer with you, the thing where my life gets upended, put me there. The thing where I'm conformed to your very death, yeah, sign me up for that. How did Paul, the persecutor, go from riding his donkey to kill Christians to saying, sign me up to die. Sign me up to fellowship with you in the sufferings. And we all know he did. He fellowshiped with Christ in the sufferings. How do we get from the place that our life is all about me and securing my place and my reputation and what I want to be and what I want to attain and what I want to have? How do we get from that place to saying, here's what I want. I want to know you. I want to experience your power for real in my life. The power of your resurrection, I want that in my life. I want to fellowship with you in your sufferings. And the way you suffered, I want to come in beside you and I want to fellowship us on the way. I want to fellowship as I suffer with you. And then I want to be made conformable to your death. The annihilation of your person. I want to join you in on that. I want to be in on that. There's only one reason that anyone would do that. And it's if they saw Jesus as ultimately the most beautiful and desirable thing in all the universe. As ultimately better than all the other alternatives. Bar none. Bar suffering. Bar even death. Better than every single other alternative. Let me know you, Father. See... What I believe happens in surrender and what surrender and what can happen in every single one of our lives starting tonight is we can choose to surrender our identity to the cross and we can experience such a vision of who God is that our lives will be transformed to the place that we're not concerned about whether or not I ever get mine. That we're not spending our time protective and defensive and I wonder how I'm going to hold on to this and have it. Instead, we can say, sign me up for that fellowship of your suffering because you're so much better than everything else that I could ever attain or be. That on my own, I see it now. I am dead men's bones. On my own, I am full of corruption and every kind of uncleanness. And in my flesh, I will not make it before your throne. So I choose you. 
I choose you over comfort and over satisfaction and over satiation and over comfort and over attaining what I believe I need so that people recognize me and I get some sort of affirmation from it. I'm past all of that because I just want this one thing. I want you, Jesus, to be seen through my life. Because see, when we get here, when we can be with Jesus and the fellowship of his sufferings, we can walk in front of a firing squad and the glory of God will shine out of our lives in front of that firing squad. And like John the Baptist who bowed his head and they cut it off and yet the glory of God resounded 13 times more because Jesus commissioned his disciples to go out and work miracles in the same way our lives, even if we die tomorrow, can redound to God's glory because we chose to fellowship with him in his sufferings. We chose to be conformed unto his death. We chose to forget everything else in order that we might receive the power of his resurrection in our daily life so that we could know him for that reason alone. But I am fully convinced that in the Bible, it teaches, apart from surrender, you never get that view of God. As long as our identity is more important than his face, our identity is what we get. If we want to see Jesus, I think it's biblical to say that we have to surrender completely. But we don't surrender as a work. We don't surrender in hopes that if I do this, I can make it into heaven. We surrender because we believe that in the surrendering, Christ will reveal himself. What did Jesus say? He said, who loves me? Him who keeps my commands. Those who keeps my commands, me and my father, we will come and we will make our house in that person. The God of the universe will come and make his house in the person that obeys him. So why is God's presence not as near as I want it in my life? Why am I not convinced that I want to share with Christ even in his sufferings? Why am I not satisfied with God receiving glory from my sufferings if that's the only reason that I'm in my sufferings? Why do we still hold so tight to my rights? To I would, but... They better, and she did, and we went, and I'll never. Guys, this is about us as individuals experiencing Jesus, which is the most important thing in in the universe. There's nothing more important for any of us than that we individually experience who Jesus really is. Otherwise, we're shadow boxing. Otherwise, unlike Paul, we'll get to the end of our life and find out that we didn't fight for real that we didn't fight a good fight, that we didn't finish the faith, that we did box as one who just plays around with shadows. The reality of this comes in the person of Christ when he lives in our hearts. And I was talking to my boys the other day trying to explain because it said that John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit. So we were trying to figure out, well, how do you get filled with the Spirit? And the only thing I could think of was there was a cup on the table. I said, well... If that cup's full of water and I want more water, what do I have to do first? We have to empty the cup, right? So are we willing to empty ourselves? Even if it costs us. So I believe that in 
Paul's surrender, in his giving up of external religious acts to attain his desires, he experienced a vision of God that was ultimately convincing to him that Jesus was unlike every other thing in the universe, his own health, his own body included. That he was willing to be thrown into a lion's den because Jesus was that much better than his own safety. That he was willing to be stoned to death because Jesus was better than him getting to live a full life. See, he surrendered to the place that Jesus was literally the best thing in the universe to him, not a theoretical best thing. But I want to show you guys the life that he lives. Verse 11 Listen to Paul's heart here. He's just talked about giving up everything, losing his identity. He's given it all up. He has nothing left. He's willing to suffer with Jesus. He's willing to be conformed with his death. And listen to his motivation. He says, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul was being gripped by the fact that the creator of the universe revealed himself to me on that road and has been so sweet and kind and protected me and kept me and been with me that I enjoy so much. I enjoy so much that the strongest government in the world is aligned against me right now and I'm still okay with it. I love him that much, but I know that it's going to be so much better when I finally cast off this body that I'm willing to go through all of it because I know that there's going to be a resurrection. I know there's going to be an uninterrupted level of this fellowship between me and my creator for all eternity. So whatever it costs for me to get to that resurrection, I'm okay with that. It will not diminish the quality of my life. It will not diminish me to experience these things because I get to spend eternity with Jesus. And then verse 12, he says, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. You guys, this is where I rest my faith. This is where I tell you emphatically and guarantee it, that if we will choose to surrender our very identities to the person of Jesus Christ, that he will so apprehend us that we will, like Paul, Follow after, if that I may apprehend that which also I was apprehended of. What's he saying? Jesus has gripped me so strong. Jesus has held me so strong and tight that now I seek after him. If perhaps I may apprehend that which has apprehended me. The only way I can picture this in my mind is, you know, somebody on a date and they're waiting for their girlfriend to get there and they're just pacing back and forth.